Hello everyone, this is Crystal Nazal from Palo Alto University. I'm the Director of Faculty Learning and Instructional Development. Welcome to Episode 1 of the Teaching at PAU Podcast. Welcome again. I'm so thrilled you could join us today. Now before we get started, I want to explain a bit why we were launching the Teaching at PAU Podcast. Last year, faculty expressed interest in teaching ideas, but called for more diverse accessibility to the information. Someone suggested launching a podcast because the information can be heard anytime or anywhere. The purpose of this project is twofold. First of which, it serves a purpose to expand information on teaching. The second purpose for this podcast is to better connect us with members of our own community. Now, to kickstart this project off, I have an exciting first guest that has a long and phenomenal history in the realm of pedagogy. In addition to that, she's one of the most visible people at PAU. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first guest, President Dr. Maureen O'Connor. Thank you so much for being my first guest, Maureen. I'm thrilled to be your first guest and thrilled about this podcast. (laughs) As am I. (laughs) So I'm going to start off with the question on pedagogy. Given that I lead the pedagogy efforts at PAU, I was thrilled to learn how passionate you are about the subject matter. What was the impetus to this passion and how did your journey into the world of pedagogy begin? And how many hours do we have? (laughs) (laughs) As many hours as you'd like. (laughs) Um, Let me start with um, what happened to me as a graduate student. I was um, a teaching assistant at the University of Arizona as a first-year graduate student. And I went, showed up for my assignment, which was to be a TA for Psychology 101, And I walked into an auditorium that had 600 undergraduate students in it. That's it. (laughs) With a professor at the very front of the auditorium reading her then, not PowerPoint, but uh, the the former version of PowerPoint, like the, you know, the overhead projector. Oh my gosh. Reading her notes off of the overheads to this class of 600 people. Wow. We then, each of us as a TA, had a group of 30 that we were then supposed to help um, for one day a week. And I realized at that moment, they were getting nothing out of that lecture and that I had to teach them. (laughs) And I just became passionate about trying to help them understand what was not happening in the classroom, but what they needed to know. And, you know, fast forward to being an assistant professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and facing my first year of teaching, having had no formal training in teaching, Hmm. um, having, you know, lots of research experience, but not any no one really ever spoke to me about kind of learning how to teach. They just assumed because I had a PhD that I could teach. So I walked into that year, I taught seven sections of psychology and law, which was a junior level class. And at the the City University of New York, we have a broad range of student uh, abilities. And what I realized is I had juniors in that class who couldn't write. I have juniors who had never spoken in class. I had 
seniors who uh, had never done a research paper. You know, I had all kinds of, and then I had some amazing students who were ready to, you know, be in a PhD program. And I had no idea how to reach the range of, of the students that I was dealing with who were bright, enthusiastic, but didn't have the preparation that I wish they had had. So after a year of scrambling and, you know, putting, uh, you know, doing things like assigning, you know, 25 page paper to this group of students who were completely unprepared to, to, to do that and spending my entire um, holidays and breaks and every minute um, putting red marks on pieces of paper, I realized that I needed help. And I started to go, I started to attend the occasional workshop that was being offered, particularly around writing. So how to, how to help your students um, do, their, do, do their writing. And I was struggling with that image of who am I as a professor? I'm trying to teach them psychology, but if they can't write, mm-hmm. how can I do that effectively? So I started to learn from my English department colleagues about effective strategies for teaching writing. And of course, I learned things like you never assign a 25 page (laughs) paper to students who are not ready to do that, but instead you break down assignments and things. So then, um, so I became very involved in in trying to to help the folks in our department to understand better how to be effective in the classroom. I still was a a neophyte in my own way. Then when I was asked to run the doctoral program in psychology at the Graduate Center, um, now I realized we had about 500 doctoral students in psychology who were required by their uh, fellowships to teach in the CUNY undergraduate classrooms. And one student, Justine Cogagno, who's now a fantastic uh, policy psychologist in Washington, D.C., walked into my office in tears and said she had just been assigned to teach developmental psychology at Hunter College. She not only had never taught, she had never taken developmental psychology. She's a social psychologist. And she had no idea what to do. And she was distraught, to say the least. Out of that meeting, and she was also a leader, and out of that meeting, we developed a pedagogy committee, much as you have at at PAU, as we now have uh, with our wonderful committee on pedagogy here, led by uh, our director of faculty learning and professional (laughs) development, which is thrilling. But in the same way, we created a a student-led committee, and we started to really think about how to prepare, at that, in that case, doctoral students for teaching in the undergraduate classroom. And we launched a whole series of initiatives, including a pedagogy day, which mm-hmm. we replicated here at PAU last summer, which was really exciting. Um, ongoing workshops, sort of ongoing conversations, um, and culminating in the graduate center being named as the graduate student teaching association for division two of APA teaching of psychology, which brought a sort of national leadership position. So it evolved completely out of student interest and student need into being um, for me uh, kind of understanding that as with everything else in our field, 
Mm-hmm. There's a body of knowledge here. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of that body of knowledge was created by psychologists. So why weren't we better preparing not just graduate students, but faculty for, uh, for teaching based on what we know about human learning and, and, and memory? So all of that combined to just, for me, this became an abs- as you described, absolute passion. <laughs> That, that is quite the evolution. It really started off from your lived experience as a TA, going and becoming a professor, and then being in a position to support students who are going to, are going to do the same thing. That's, that's so fascinating. Thank you. Um, so I, I know, speaking of the GSTA and supporting graduate students, I, I read parts of your ebook, How We Teach, a GSTA Guide to Student-Centered Learning. In the chapter you co-wrote with Dr. Brooks, who was here this summer at the conference, you speak in detail about student-centered learning. Can you explain to our audience what student-centered learning is and why you subscribe to this teaching philosophy? Sure. Um, That book, by the way, is available on the Society Mm -hmm. for the Teaching of Psychology website free of charge. So (laughs) um, it has amazing chapters written, many of them written by doctoral students themselves at at the Graduate Center, but also leading experts around the country. So student-centered learning, what what, as we um, developed the Teaching of Psychology course, which I taught at the Graduate Center um, for a number of years, what we realized was there's most of us would like to teach an ideal student. Mm. We, we would like to teach a student who's already been prepared with all the kind of basic knowledge that we want them to have writing skills, speaking skills, you know, um, motivation. We want them to be really motivated. We would probably prefer that they, um, you know, that they are just, you know, passionate about, <laughs> about what we're teaching and they're just sitting in rapt attention as you, as you uh, speak to them about your wisdom. Uh, and, uh, of course, that isn't at all what teaching is. And I think what student-centered learning means for, for me is and there's a concept in the law similar to this. You take your students as you find them. And what we were trying to do in in creating the teaching of psychology course was to help new instructors, particularly those without a lot of experience, to understand who was in front of them Hmm. and how they might need to adjust what they hope to accomplish in the class based on who, who was really in front of them, not the ideal student that they had in their mind. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I think the challenge for faculty is to realize that doesn't involve lowering standards. It involves setting yourself up to be successful mm-hmm. as an instructor. So, for example, if you have students who have never before been asked to write a research paper or use APA style or, you know, any, some of these things that we would certainly be doing at PAU, you cannot just simply make, give them that assignment without proper scaffolding. If you have students who need accommodation of some type, you need to be able to recognize that and to support that and help those students get the accommodation they need. If you have students who are absolutely light years ahead of, 
other students in, in a particular skill. How could you design an assignment that that student could thrive with, right? So it really became about not, you know, not trying to teach to the least common denominator, which I think is sometimes what, how it gets interpreted, but rather to really design your, your lesson planning and your curriculum and your assignments in particular for making the most number of your students be able to succeed, of course, assuming they do the work and assuming their own motivation and, you know, those things, which you can't really help, but, but how can you make, the mo- mo- make it possible for the most students to succeed in your class? That's what we meant by, by student-centered. Um, really understanding who's in front of you, what's their lived experience. Um, I'll give you a tiny example, if I can, just quickly. Absolutely. So I had a, um, one of my wonderful uh, English professor colleagues once come into uh, this teaching of psychology class. And we were talking about how to, do, how to uh, help your students in their writing skills. And up on the blackboard, at that point it was a blackboard, it might have been a whiteboard. Um, but he, he had the students say, okay, let's, t- let's list every type of writing that you do almost every day. So the students said, you know, they, they summarize research studies, they write emails, they, you know, some of them wrote blogs, you know, some wrote letters, others, you know, were writing um, uh, lab reports, you know, I mean, they just, you know, they just listed sort of all of these things that they write every day. And then on the other part of the board, he said, okay, let's now make a list of the types of writing you think your students are doing every day. And these are undergraduate students in, in New York City. They're writing hip hop poetry. <laughs> they're, they're texting. Mm-hmm. They might be doing Snapchat, which has no writing at all. They are, you know, and the lists were so different. So you, so, you know, if you're designing your assignments for people who have the experience on the left, but your students are, their experience with writing is on the right. Mm it was impossible for them to succeed. And it was such a powerful visual of kind of, you know, again, we want to move the students who are on the right to being able to do the things on the left, but we cannot just give them an assignment and expect them to be able to do it if they've never had to do any of that kind of writing in earlier in their careers. Now, as graduate students at PAU, we also can't assume that even graduate students have had some of that background that we wish they'd had. Mm. And it varies by their undergraduate experience, their high school experience, what they did after, you know, their potentially, un, you know, undergraduate work or graduate work. You know, they may or may not have had the type of experience that we want them to have had. So again, we just need to make sure we're not asking them to do something that they are going to fail at because they've never had the the support and strategies that that they needed to to succeed. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what I mean by student-centered. And that's why your group and your committee and the work that you're doing can be so helpful to faculty to sort of help to really figure out how do I figure out who's in front of me mm-hmm. and how do I structure my class and my and my assignments to again not lower my standards of expectation but my raise my my 
possibility of success mm -hmm. for these students. Allowing students to thrive. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Thank you. Now, diversity on to this subject. It's one of my favorite subjects. Um, it's such a strong value at PAU. It's what's attracted me, attracted me as a, to come to PAU as a student. And it's, <laughs> and, yeah, it continues to want me to be a part of the community so strongly. Um, do you see a relationship between uh, pedagogical efforts that we're doing as well as our diversity efforts? And can how we teach enhance our commitment to diversity? And if so, how? Well, certainly we want the answer to be yes. <laughs> um, we want everything we do to enhance our commitment to, uh, to diversity. But I think in particular, our, our pedagogy development work can really be important. And here again, we can think about um, students coming from different backgrounds, um, students coming from uh, underrepresented uh, groups that, who have not had certain opportunities, and in particular, first-generation um, graduate students, students who have not had, you know, haven't sat around the dinner table to talk about their, you know, family member's dissertation, you know, haven't had that opportunity to really be able to understand um, how that, how, how students with various backgrounds can succeed. And I think until we, and, and there are, you know, there are culturally competent strategies for making, you know, for, again, for ensuring that people have the opportunity to succeed. So I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about one of my favorite ever students. Um, he was a quiet, um, a little bit older student, sat in the back in my <laughs> psychology and law class at the, uh, at John Jay College. And uh, for quite the few first couple of weeks, didn't say anything. Um, he was a, a student of color and he really didn't speak. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, I'll keep going here. And then uh, after a little while, he did, he started to contribute. And then he came up to me after class one day, we had been talking about um, psychology prov uh, selection of police officers and what, what variables that we look for in, a, in police officers. And he revealed to me that he himself was a police officer and that he was a detective. And he had started college and at age, you know, 17, 18, you know, right out of high school and just completely bombed and failed out, had no idea what to do. First generation college, you know, no one in his family had gone. He went into the police department and he moved, you know, moved up through the ranks, but now he needed his college degree to move farther and the first paper that he wrote for me was was pretty uh, pretty lacking in, and I covered it in red, and you know, you know, and sat down, agreed to meet with anybody who wanted to meet with me, which sadly, you know, some students did and some students didn't, but he did, and um, he. We then went on, and he came. He approached me after that class, which he turned out to be the best student in that class, as it, as it turned out. Um, uh, but he, he approached me about doing an independent study with him and because he wanted, he realized he needed more work on his writing and would I work with him on an independent study. And in the independent study, he did uh, uh, a focus on human, uh, human relations or HR, 
human resources, which we didn't offer at the time. So he couldn't take a course in it. Mm. So he did an independent study about it. And in his paper, he did an analysis of how the police department was functioning in his unit. And it was, you know, we did maybe eight, 10 drafts of that, of that paper. And he ultimately um, submitted it to his, to his, supervisors at the police department. Uh, several years after that, he retired from NYPD and went on to law school. Wow. And he's now a law professor at uh, a local, he does, uh, and, he, and he works with students on their writing. I mean, I'm not making this up. So, you know, that's, but it was such a good example of, you know, he could have just been a, a, a person in the back who didn't speak and, you know what I mean? And depending how, but depending how you structured you know, the, making sure that, that the class had a whole variety of techniques mm-hmm. in it so that even that student started to become engaged. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the students who are going to talk from the beginning, you don't almost have to worry about, you know, me, 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 you mm-hmm. know, those kind. It's the people in the back who you think, you know, either this is an uninterested student, you know, who's just, you know, needs the credits and whatever, and you can make that assumption. Or you can try different techniques so that that, and I think what got, got him involved was this project we did of putting, putting everything on the board of what we expected our police officers to, you know, every variable we thought they should have. Mm-hmm. And that got him excited because we were, we were working in groups and we were, got, you know, it was very animated discussion. So finding ways that for every kind of student to to be able to feel safe and participate and then look what happened you know so that's just one of many many stories that's a phenomenal story um speaking of variety of techniques i think that one thing that's really changing teaching is technology Technology is an extremely important topic in our classrooms today and I'm, i'm curious what your views are on using technology in the classroom and you know, in online teaching? Well, they've certainly evolved. You know, yes. I was, um, I, I, I myself have not ever taught an online, a fully online course. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I am not a person with that direct experience, but I've helped teach about it mm-hmm. and teach people how to do it. Um, and, and interestingly, so here's a, here's a diversity piece that, that, that links in. So I had a, 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 a young woman, a faculty member, who was pre-tenure, um, exceedingly, um, I won't mention who, but, but she was a very promising scholar, a, a lovely person, wonderful mentor. And she came into my office and she said the following, as I was chair of her department at the time. She said, my husband and I have decided to start having a family and I don't see a path for having a family and achieving what I need to as a scholar to be successful. Hmm. And she had looked at the statistics, which were terrible Hmm. for women with children moving into tenure. This is about 10 years ago now. I don't think, unfortunately, it's too much better. It's, It's getting there. But what she and I did was we talked about her did she want to leave? You know, did, and she did not. She was just trying to make it work. So this was several, she was pl- very planful. This was like two, three years before she was really ready to start her family. 
And that was early on in the online teaching world. Hmm. So I said to her, I said, you know, you're one of our best instructors. We have an undergraduate abnormal psychology class, which is required of all psychology majors. What if we worked for the next two years to develop that course online Hmm. and that you could then teach it? You know, once you started to have a family, you would have an option of having some online teaching that would allow you to have a very more varied schedule than if you had to, you know, had to commute in and, and, and be physically, you know, in the classroom. And she agreed. She went and got all of this training. She talked to our, uh, we had a, a team of people at CUNY at the time who were trying to help faculty to move things online. And she did what I think is now still one of the best courses I've ever seen. So I became more confident that we could do high quality online teaching. But I think, you know, there's, there's, there's still a concern. What, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Um, so in the teaching of psychology course, we worked really hard to think about how to, how to teach people who were not necessarily um, you know, weren't, didn't have the instinct necessarily to want to teach online, but we knew they were going to be asked to teach online. In almost any teaching setting now, there's some expectation that you'd have some either hybrid or online teaching skills. So we really thought about how do we take our evidence-based teaching, right? All the science that we've been, that we've been looking at is how students learn, what are the most effective techniques, and translate those techniques that have been tested primarily in the classroom into an online environment. So don't lose your high quality teaching process, you know, style and and effective uh, strategies, but just translate them into an online environment. And I think here at PAU, having the Zoom technology Mm -hmm. so that you have this sort of, in some ways, the best of both worlds, because you you can physically see your students and, and see and they can see each other. So there's that, there is that interactive piece, but then you can develop your online projects and the online components to be most effective so that the time you have together in that Zoom discussion, at least and particularly I think the master's program has done this very well, you know, that you're discussing material that the, that the students have already read and, and, and grappled with. So I think I've come over time to think you take the same approach, right? Mm-hmm. Evidence-based teaching. What do we know that works in the classroom? What do we know that's effective strategies, you know, daily quizzes, you know, whatever, whatever it is that we've, that we, we know um, works and we translate those into online teaching as opposed to just dumping content Mm-hmm. online and expecting students to know what to do. And I think one of the things that distinguishes PAU from other institutions that have moved in an online direction is we're not willing to give up the quality. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. So, so how do we do it in such a way that we keep the quality, but we build flexibility into everybody, both the students and faculties mm-hmm. time and schedule. So I, to me, I see it as a win-win, but it, it requires support. And I think your group and your committee and certainly our pedagogy conference and other things can be really helpful to faculty who are 
navigating that that change. I'm inclined, I'm inclined to agree with you. <laughs> how, how about generally? There's so many technology tools in the residential sort of format. Mm-hmm. What do you think about using technology in you know in person? So I I am refused to to say use PowerPoint. <laughs> I'm an anti PowerPoint person. Um, in the following way. So one of the, if you read the, uh, the, the ebook, for example, and, and uh, we actually have, I think, a published piece on this as well. We, uh, in, in working on developing pedagogy um, training, we became very concerned about the research that was showing the ineffectiveness of PowerPoint in the classroom. So what had happened over time, I think, is that people put their content into PowerPoint then sit in the classroom, put the PowerPoint up, and then read from it. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, and of course, that's not everybody, but that was enough people that it was really becoming an issue. And there's some really interesting work. Um, Susan Nolan at, at um, uh, New Jersey and a number of other people have actually done really interesting work on the ineffectiveness of that. Of, of that. So we did something we, we called five slides, you know, so five slides, five minutes kind of thing. So you you want to have an orienting PowerPoint. I mean, I'm not totally against PowerPoint. You want to have some orienting uh, content potentially. You, you want to use graphics. You know, you want to have uh, maybe an image, actually an image on a slide in the context of a discussion about something, you know, a cartoon, you know, something. I mean, there are ways, I think, to use PowerPoint that are effective, but simply putting your PowerPoint your lecture onto PowerPoint slides, putting those up on the wall and watching your students just blindly look at them or even maybe, you know, take notes on the, the physical version of the PowerPoint slides that you've given them is not what we, what the research at least says is really engaged teaching. Mm-hmm. It's not active, you know, student active learning strategy. Mm-hmm. So how could you translate what you want to accomplish into more active strategies. Mm -hmm. So I think technology can be an amazing um, uh, tool for building active strategies. So you can have, for example, a Jeopardy game, Mm -hmm. you know, you can have, you can show a video clip of, you know, the gorilla, you know, the famous, you know, or some of one of the, even in graduate classes, there are people who haven't seen the Milgram, you know, uh, study or, mm-hmm. or other things, you can use technology to to you know demonstrate things or into and to integrate into your classes. But mm-hmm. but I think we what we want to do um, is is get away from kind of just translating our lectures into into technology. Mm-hmm. So how to use it more creatively. And I think probably most of our faculty are doing that to some extent, but it takes some time. Now, one thing I haven't mentioned that I really want to mention, I know we're probably running out of time, (laughs) but what I really want to mention is something that I think uh, was very important lesson for me to learn along the way of working, particularly working with new instructors and graduate students who are learning to teach is teaching should be collaborative. Mm. We spend way too much time, and this was certainly the case for me as a, as a junior faculty member. I would just sit for hours by myself, you know, crafting these courses, which 
a thousand other people had been doing the same thing in their own little offices, sitting by themselves, <laughs> crafting courses. And we really need to do more collaborative course prep. We need to get out of like, I own this and I'm the only one who knows how to do this. And we need to collaborate. Mm -hmm. So if I have a good exercise about how to, you know, teach about the insanity defense, you know, which of course is my area (laughs) of interest, then I should share that with everybody and then let somebody else give me what, how, you know, something they've really thought that's really cool about competency to stand trial or whatever it is like, Let's build an environment where we collaborate Mm -hmm. across these exercises and things so that you're not by yourself sitting and trying to be like, oh, my God, now I have to, you know, now I have to create all of this extra stuff. But you're actually like, if I do, I'm teaching this course and you're teaching this course, you know, let's figure out, you know, I'll work on some things related to this concept you work on some things related to that and then let's share mm-hmm. so that we, by the end, have a course that's pretty interesting or I'm an expert on, on X. Let me do that, you know, that presentation. You're the expert on Y. Why don't you come in and do that? And then over time, you know, we build a course where the real experts are talking about the areas mm-hmm. they're really good at. So that collaborative spirit, I think, brings a lot of this together. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you don't, you, we shouldn't be feeling like we have to sit by ourselves and spend, you know, 50 hours trying to create a course that lots of other people have had to already create. Mm-hmm. And this, I will say the Society for Teaching of Psych um, website, and there may be one also on the counseling side, uh, there are many, many um, sample syllabi. Mm-hmm. Start with that. You know, don't try to create something out of whole cloth. Over time, you tweak it and you make it your own and you add to it. But, you know, our my motto after all of this time is beg, borrow, steal. You know, <laughs> if somebody else has figured out how to teach a particular concept, take that concept. Yeah. You know, it's not plagiarism when you're teaching a concept and you're trying to use the best technique that someone else has already used. So I think we have to really think more about how to collaborate, Mm -hmm. particularly for people who are teaching the same course over a given year or two, Mm -hmm. you know, all sit down and say, okay, let's divide this up and let's get some cool videos and interesting, you know, provocative you know, technology that we can use, let's share it all. And by the end, we'll have a very, very um, uh, exciting student-centered active course. Mm -hmm. Those conversations could be so fruitful. I mean, when I started this position, I opened up sort of the opportunity to have these discussions with faculty. And I've had many really vibrant discussions on different ideas and techniques on how to get students actively engaged. And even myself, I've learned so much just having these discussions with people. I know uh, Eduardo Bungay, he's <laughs> he's a great person to talk to. And even in my own class, he suggested polling. And that was one of the most popular sort of techniques that I did when I taught history and systems this past year. People, the students seem to really like polling and that includes you know technology and a a way to actively engage students especially those that don't necessarily always contribute as much as other students so well and then you can use that to reinforce you know basic statistics concepts Mm -hmm. and you can actually they can right there they can do some analysis of comparing between groups like you can there's all kinds of payoffs when you when you get creative like that so that's you know i i I, i'm all for that (laughs) that kind of uh 
active, you know, active learning, group-based learning, peer learning, mm -hmm. um, you know, these are techniques that there is evidence for mm -hmm. their effectiveness. And as good as good empiricists, you know, we should we should be looking for those for those opportunities to to build those into our teaching. Absolutely. So I have one final question right. for you today. Um, I'd actually like to conclude with your thoughts and that you just touched upon it. Right. But to sort of further expand what your hopes are for pedagogy at our university. Well, I would love us to, to continue. This is, you know, everything you're doing in your in your committee with with the faculty engagement and students now we have we have some graduate students teaching in our undergraduate program this this year i'm hoping we're going to have our second pedagogy conference next summer you know i think just building more support and energy around teaching and moving us away from that feeling of teaching as such a burden, you know, which I, believe me, you know, having taught many years, seven courses, um, you know, teaching takes a lot of time. And I, what I hope for our pedagogy program is that we, over time, can provide the kind of support and training and development that faculty need to reduce the, mm. the burden of teaching. You know, and it, to me, it's, it's really, I think one of the big fears that faculty have, at least in my experience, is when you ask, when you sort of say, you know, let's do development around, around these concepts, that it just seems like more work, mm -hmm. right? And I think at PAU, what I would love to help working with you and the faculty create is an environment in which teaching is is collaborative, in which teaching is supported in ways, you know, where we have the right techniques and technology and support people. You know, we, we have 10 Scots and, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and but, but honestly, like just, you know, trying to incentive, you know, make, make it incentives for people to use evidence-based techniques to feel like they have the support they need and to not have teaching be, be to feel you know as a burden as much as it is a joy and i think most of us get into this work because of that joy part mm -hmm. and because we see how teaching can be transformative but it becomes difficult when you have a high teaching load and you have a lot of work that you're doing so how can our pedagogy program help to support faculty to to be the best they can be and how could we develop our graduate students to really being, uh, you know, the, the new generation of evidence-based, student-centered, active uh, instructors. That I would love to, to be part of. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been so enlightening. <laughs> and I appreciate and value all that you have to say today. And well, I appreciate the opportunity. And, you know, let's go podcast, <laughs> teaching, at, teaching at PAU. Let's keep it going. Yay. <laughs> Thank you so much. This concludes episode one of the Teaching at PU podcast. I look forward to having you for episode two, where I interview a very inspirational faculty member from our own community. I'll see you then.